That's Ezekiel chapter 35, starting at verse 1, going to 36, 15. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, At the time of their final punishment, therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for bloodshed, and blood shall pursue you. Because you did not hate bloodshed, therefore blood shall pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it all who come and go, and I will fill its mountains with the slain. On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your cities shall not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying, they are laid desolate, they are given us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. Thus says the Lord God, when the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel, because it was desolate, so I will deal with you and you shall be desolate, Mount Seir and all Edom and all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy said of you, aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, Precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations, and you became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, the desolate wastes and the deserted cities, which have become a prey and derision to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, Thus says the Lord God, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that all the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. Behold, I am for you and I will turn to you and you shall be tilled and sown. 
and I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. And I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will let the people walk on you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children. Therefore, you shall no longer devour people and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God. And I will not let you hear, my hear any more the reproach of the nations, and you shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples and no longer cause your nation to stumble, declares the Lord God. The former US President Bill Clinton comes from a place called Hope in Arkansas, and in one speech on his first presidential campaign, he famously said, I still believe in a place called hope. And the question is, do we? We're in a series of uh, talks in Ezekiel 34 to 37, which is about life from death. And this evening, we're considering life after death. And it can be very easy to be flippant about death most of the time until its full force hits you. One such occasion for me was actually yesterday. I was at a Thanksgiving service for a friend of mine uh, called Pete. Pete was the same age as me. He was teaching applied maths at MIT, or as he described it, doing sums. And he was due to get, get married next week. But a month ago, and without any prior warning, he collapsed while playing basketball, and sadly he died. And so yesterday was a deeply sad occasion. But through the deepest possible pain, first his parents and then his two younger sisters paid tribute to him. And they said this, they said that Pete trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they believe and he believed in the resurrection of the dead and the future life with Jesus to come. I can't remember the exact words he used, but his mum finished by saying something like this, Peter knew his heavenly father and his Lord and he was looking forward to going home to be with him. Now, perhaps many today would say that um, they were deluded for thinking that. But if you were there, I tell you, you know that they believed it. Do we still believe in a place called hope? Ezekiel speaks about such a place in these verses. He's speaking in 585 BC into a context of national death. God's people Israel have been defeated and they've been deported hundreds of miles away to Babylon and modern-day Iraq. And Babylon's scorched-earth policy has left Israel's homeland a smoldering wreck. But now God, through Ezekiel, is promising life from death for his people. And last week we saw the first major part of his restoration. God said he would come himself as the rescuing shepherd. He would gather his lost and injured sheep from all over the world and would bind them up and would lead them back home. The problem is that at the moment, they have no home to go back to. But the situation is actually worse than that. The surrounding nations have been claiming the leftovers for themselves. And with these two speeches, Ezekiel demonstrates how God will deal with his enemies, and then how he will create a forever home for his people. And the first thing we see is the inevitable desolation of God's enemies. 
And that's in chapter 35. Now, I don't know how good your Middle Eastern geography is, um, but Mount Seir is the defining morphological feature of Israel's southern eastern neighbor, Edom. Um, The animosity between Edom and Israel goes back all the way to their infancy in Genesis. And at this part, at this stage in the Old Testament's progress, Edom has come to represent natural humanity's enmity to the people of God. And that had been particularly on display at the time of Israel's defeat and exile. The headline of what God says uh, to them is in verses three and four. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you, and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities to waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The point is unmissable. The word desolation is used 10 times in this chapter. Because Edom had failed to recognize God, their creator, and had mistreated his people, God says he will make them desolate. And when this happens, they'll have no doubt about who he is. And this is by no means unfair, but it's completely inevitable given what they've done. And the first thing they've done is persecution in verses five to nine. So while Israel was burnt and God's people were fleeing, Eden laid down the red carpet for their oppressors even participating in it, we see in verse five. God says to them, because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final judgment. I don't know if you've seen um, one of the disturbing trends in schools on the moment I saw on the news a few days ago. Um, There's videos being posted on social media of uh, children uh, being beaten up badly. But instead of uh, other children going to help, Everyone is laughing and cheering them on and videoing the attacks on their phones and then posting them on social media. And Edom is a bit like a child uh, like that with their phone out and filming the destruction of Israel. And God's people still face persecution today um, and the world in large part um, just stands by. In 2019, the Foreign Office commissioned a report on persecuted Christians around the world. And the report has its own website, and it's easily found online. And the conservative estimate, it says, is that 80% of religious persecution in the world is targeted at Christians. The report includes things like church bombings, extrajudicial murders, mass intimidation and violence causing mass migration, and terrible things done to people in front of their families to try and force people to renounce their faith in Jesus. Um, Just for example, on the 14th of April 2019, Filani Herzman killed 17 Christians um, at a a baby's dedication in a Nigerian village. Or in Pakistan, it's estimated that around 700 Christian women a year are forced into marriages with abusive husbands who are antagonistic to their faith in Jesus. That is, um, sadly, the world in which we live. And in the UK, we um, live off the back of hundreds of years of Christian influence, So pressure and persecution here can be on a much smaller scale. But if we're unaware, if you ask any Christian here who publicly and openly lives for the Lord Jesus, um, they'll tell you of instances of intimidation, of bullying, of workplace disadvantage or pressure um, for being Christians. The persecution of God's people is still very much alive and kicking today. And persecution by Edom. And secondly, presumption in verses 10 to 12. And there's presumption 
as the Babylonians are marching into Israel and the Edomites are already dividing up the carcass that remains between them. So in verse 10, uh, God said, because you said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there, he goes on to say other things. But the point is that even though the Lord was present in the land, and the Edomites presumed they could just swoop in uh, like vultures and take the spoil. They could just take and enjoy what God's uh, given uh, without any reference to him. And it's remarkable how we naturally share uh, that attitude, isn't it? We get so used to living in God's world and enjoying all the good he gives. And that we presume that is there, if there is a heaven uh, and we meet God, that he'd be lucky to have us. Um, he'd be waiting for us there. And the question to Edom is the same as to us. Um, how could we possibly think that? Uh, presumption. And finally, pride. The Edomites think they can get away with this. So in the second half of verse 12, um, God says, I've heard all the revilings that you've uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying they are, a desolate, they are desolate, they are given us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiply your words against me. I heard it. Now, this was a little while ago, um, but you might remember uh, Gordon Brown's disastrous hot mic moment in the build-up to the 2010 election. Uh, Sky News was covering him on the campaign trail, and he got chatting to a woman called Gillian Duffy. Uh, amongst other things, she was speaking about her concerns about the impact of mass immigration on Rochdale's struggling public services. The exchange didn't go um, that well for Gordon, and he got back in his car, and he forgot that he was mic'd up. And he turned to his aide and he said, that was a disaster. You should never have put me with that woman. Uh, and his aide, a bit flustered, um, uh, just asked what, what she said. Uh, and Gordon said she was just some sort of bigoted woman. And Sky News was replaying that conversation, and particularly just those two words, bigoted woman, over and over again uh, for the next uh, four or five weeks. It was seen as the death knell uh, to his prime ministerial campaign. And Edom had their own hot mic moment here, and it was their death now. They magnified themselves. They boasted about what they had taken from God. And how quickly we can become proud of our own achievements and what qualifications we've got and what money we've earned, how we provided all this for ourselves, all off our own back. And that is really a position of immense pride before our creator. Nothing is possible for us without his gift of life in his world. How can we point to our own achievements um, without recognizing him? Um, this is Eden. Uh, this is humanity without God. And persecution, presumption, pride. And the just retribution, uh, the just retribution for that is much worse than a lost election, um, but the loss of life God had granted them Verse 11 said they'd be treated justly as their sins deserve and they'd be desolate, verse 15. And even though they've not recognized God for who he was in their lives so far, um, when he judges them, uh, God says, then they will know that I am the Lord. If anyone positions themselves against God, um, their desolation is inevitable. And we'll go on to see what that means for God's people in a moment. But it serves as a warning to all of us about where we are if we don't accept the rescue of God. Uh, before um, William was the senior pastor here, um, the senior pastor was a man called Dick Lucas. 
And once he was speaking on the topic of God's judgment uh, to a group of businessmen, and one of them came up to him afterwards and said, uh, Mr. Lucas, I think you're trying to frighten me, frighten me. And Dick said to him, I wish I could frighten you, but the trouble is you won't listen. Actually, it's the Lord Jesus who warns you with tears in his eyes. And that's what you'll find if you read the Gospels. And it's actually what we find if you read Ezekiel. And God said just a few chapters ago, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And the desolation of those who oppose God is inevitable, but it's not inevitable that we have to oppose God. And if we turn to him, we can live even beyond death. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord, no pleasure, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And that is what chapter 36 is all about. And that is about the eternal destination of God's people. And it's back to geography for us again. Um, Ezekiel is now commanded to speak God's word to the mountains of Israel. That represents the mountainous landscape um, of the land of Israel. And the first thing he says about his people's forever home is that it'll be protected. And that's in verse 1 to 7. And it's the other side of the coin, um, the good news, um, off the back of verse chapter 35. Um, God's people can look forward to a safe place, um, not under attack. Um, the Lord says in chapter 36, uh, verse 5, Surely have I spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt. For God's people to be secure in their land, they needed their enemies evicted and neutralized and from the ability to attack again. And on a much uh, smaller and insignificant scale, um, I was once uh, mowing my very own very small patch of land in Mile End. And as I was going along at one point, I, heard, I thought I heard someone shouting, so I stopped and mowing, um, but then I looked up and I couldn't see anyone, so I continued going. But a minute later, I turned around and my wife, uh, Abby, was flapping her, her hands at me, waving me to stop. And it turned out, completely oblivious to me, that there was a man from a neighboring flat throwing things at me, um, including a bucket of water, a banana skin, and some various things. He wasn't a great aim, luckily. Um, but since then, uh, to be honest, I've never felt completely secure uh, in my own land. <laughs> Um, but in the much more serious uh, situation of the Israelites, and um, the Lord promises protection. Verse 7, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around shall themselves suffer reproach. He's saying they'll be in no position to attack your land. Just think what that would mean for a moment for a deported Israelite who'd witnessed their own nation overrun and had their own town burnt down uh, with no home and no hope in the world. Or what that means for Nigerian Christians under threat from attack, or Pakistani Christian women um, at danger from their husbands. And God's offer of paternal protection is actually open to anyone who would turn to him. There is a secure home available to all who would turn to him and live, and protected. And this eternal home will also be prosperous in verses 8 to 11. Have a look down at verse uh, 8. But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, 
and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. And when God's people come home, they'll find themselves plentifully provided for. Even with the crippling government restrictions put on UK farmers, they could make a profit in this land. And there is no need to fly in plane loads of produce from thousands of miles away. Uh, for the people of East London, there'll be enough to smash avocado on sourdough toast as they'd like. Um, and this is all a work of God from start to finish notice. Notice again and again in those verses, I will, I will, I will, I will. Hundreds of years before, God had said, if his people were faithful to him, he would prosper them. But they'd been totally unfaithful. And they've been unfaithful for hundreds of years. But now the Lord says he will do it himself. Verse 9, I will turn to you. Even though the people had completely failed him, um, the Lord would be faithful to his promise and prosper a place for them. And he will do it. And again, just put yourself in the shoes of those um, deported and indentured Israelites for a moment. And God would prosper them again. Um, But in a way that they'd never seen before and could scarcely imagine in verse 11. God says, And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. More good than ever before. There may be one or two of us in the room who think that we're living with best life now. Johnny Sexton probably thinks he's living his best life now. I don't think I've ever seen Irish people happier than I have in the last uh, 24 hours uh, in light of the rugby. Um, But God the creator promises much better uh, than we can imagine. And also on the other side of things, if we think for a moment of all that spoils our lives, our personal evil, uh, the personal evil of others, um, then there's sickness and suffering, which we'll all face at one stage or another. And we can't look at our news feeds for more than a minute um, without seeing how much Uh, evil and sickness so many face right now around the world. And surely we want everyone to experience prospering and the fullness of life, and rather than those things. Um, And if by some miracle we think we have experienced the fullness of life uh, that God has to offer, it's a good thing that we have a much smaller mind uh, than God. He says, I will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, when he brings this about, and we will know fully just how generous um, he is, God's future home will be prosperous. And um, finally, permanent in verses 12 to 15. Um, it will never be taken away again. And just a reminder that Ezekiel is speaking to the mountains of Israel. Uh, he's not about to be talking about uh, people being trampled on uh, in verse 12. Verse 12 says, I will let people walk on you, even my people Israel and they shall possess you, and you shall be their inheritance, and you shall no longer bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour people, and you bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall no longer devour people, and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord. When this future land arrives, it will no longer bereave its people of children. And in this poetic and prophetic context, I think this points to more than there'll be no infant mortality and more than just a high life expectancy. There is a place in the future when those who turn back to the Lord and will live forever with him. It will be permanent. 
Now, we spent a few minutes speaking about heaven or the new creation, uh, but I wonder if some of you might have a similar uh, problem to me. And that is growing up. And one of my main uh, sources of theological and philosophical input, I'm sad to say, is from The Simpsons. And in The Simpsons, uh, heaven or the new creation is pictured as uh, people on clouds uh, playing harps and getting really bored. And that has had a bigger impact, I think, our cultural um, picture of heaven than we'd like to admit, or at least, at least on mine. Um, but the reality of these things uh, can be most clearly seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, in the first place, Ezekiel is at pains to show throughout his book that these things happened in history. Everything is marked by dates, and you can track it in the course of history. But then we come to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, where these things are really actualized. The big thing is, if we trust in the Lord Jesus, um, this new creation is inheritance that's certainly ours, uh, and he will keep for us. Uh, In those words we said together from 1 Peter earlier, there is an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, a kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be reeled at the last time. And we might think that some inheritances aren't too bad. Uh, Prince George isn't in too bad spot, is he? Um, I know the British monarchy wasn't what it was, uh, isn't what it was, uh, but I still wouldn't mind Balmoral as a holiday home. Or does the $30 million inheritance of uh, Luke, Leia, Sadie, Sonny, and Lauren mean anything to you? 30 million maybe doesn't sound like much in terms of all the billionaires in the world. But it is pretty excessive when you find out those names are the names of Oprah Winfrey's five dogs. Um, well, if you follow um, the Lord Jesus, our inheritance is certain, and it's much better than that. A new creation uh, with the God who made us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for us. And the Bible makes clear that um, these promises ultimately are fulfilled um, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when he returns. Israel, as a historic nation, um, were always only the first fruits of the whole people of God. And their land was meant to be a picture or a token of the whole world. These promises in Ezekiel, uh, they use imagery familiar uh, to 6th century Israel, um, but are a picture of the whole world. A new heavens and a new earth, and which Jesus will bring in on his return. The Apostle Peter puts it like this, in his second letter. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is a promise of a perfect new world. And when I struggle to uh, believe this, there's two things that help me the most. Uh, The first is the existence of this world. When I first consider this, uh, I think about the world. Sometimes it feels really solid and certain, like it's never going away. Uh, doesn't it? Well, it does to me. But it had to be created the first time. Um, on, I don't know if you listen to Radio 4, but they do a thing in the morning where they say news on this day uh, in a, a year. And yesterday morning, on this day, uh, 2014, American scientists said they found direct evidence of what happened in the first moments of the universe. They said analysis of gravitational forces proved that the universe expanded rapidly after the Big Bang. 
Now, you could be like me and have no possibility of understanding uh, their research, or you might understand it. Um, but we all know that we had a beginning, uh, that this universe was created. The Bible says it was created by God. And when I remember that, it's not such a big step to think he could recreate it again. Uh, he did it the first time. But more importantly, uh, secondly, um, what helps me believe is trusting in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you read the gospel, you see most clearly a snippet of what heaven will be like. It'll be like being around Jesus, evil and sickness and suffering removed. And Jesus promises to return to bring about that state of affairs for the whole world. And he's proved his credentials by being resurrected from the dead. And just as we close, could you turn to page 1086 of your Bibles, 1086? Jesus um, had told his disciples that he was physically going away from them for a while in order to rule from the right hand of God and to send his Holy Spirit. And perhaps understandably, the disciples were a bit nervous about him leaving. And in that context, Jesus says this to them in the first three verses of chapter 14 and the bottom left of that page. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. It's a question of trust, isn't it? Verse two, Jesus says, if there wasn't a forever home to go to, would I have said there was? And as you get to know the Lord Jesus through the Bible, he is very much worthy of that trust. And that's certainly what I found. And if we trust him, we can look forward to going home with him. And the greatest treasure in the new creation will be knowing him face to face. Verse three again, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. One person's put it like this. He said, there is a God beyond the grave who welcomes us into his arms at our death. The Bible doesn't say much about heaven. It says a lot about Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thank you that one day you will remake this world without the corruption and decay that our sin has brought about in it. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus you've given us certainty of that and that we can look forward to the inheritance of your new world, which by your great mercy we will share with the Lord Jesus. Amen.